everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have a special guest. We have Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascone. And at this moment, as we record this, uh, we are waiting to find out what's going to happen uh, with a recall effort in terms of whether or not they have enough signatures to get on the ballot. So welcome to our show, George Gascone. Hey, David. How are you? Doing well. Um, so I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, what's your take on the recall effort? Well, look, I mean, th- this is unfortunately uh, the blueprint that we are seeing over and over, um, driven by very, very right-wing Republicans. It's the same blueprint of the January 6th is, you know, election denial is you can't win fair and square, so then you look for other ways to, to try to, uh, to, you know, to overturn the will of the people and the outcome of an election. And we're seeing this, you know, played out very clear in L.A., you know, from day one, the, the week that I was sworn in, uh, you know, there were the people that run against me were talking about a, a recall. They had to be told that they had to wait at least 90 days. They waited the 90 days. They were unable to collect the signatures the first time. They immediately uh, tried again. They, you know, they spent collectively over $10 million trying to collect signatures. They brought in a company from Florida to collect signatures with a bunch of out-of-staters. Um, they had no idea what the local political landscape was. Um, they were lying to the people. Now they're actually unwilling to pay their contractor, which is very Trumpish-like, uh, not paying the workers. Um, and you know, we are waiting to see whether they have enough signatures. If they do, we'll fight, and and I, I I'm fairly certain that we will prevail. You know, there is a difference between gathering 10% of the number of people that voted in the last election, uh, many of them being misinformed and, and lied to, uh, and as opposed to getting over 50% on a on a campaign. So uh, I think that either way we'll prevail. If they don't get the signatures, I'm sure they're going to try again. If they get the signatures, we'll, we'll prevail in November. Uh, but it's, it's, it's unfortunate. We're seeing this playing out at the national and local level. And, you know, the best illustration I can say is just January the 6th. You know, this is January the 6th. Uh, same people, you know, in fact, the guy that is running this was running communications for Trump in Michigan in 2016. 
Um, the funders are people that have given heavily to very right-wing Republican candidates. So it's, it's a replay of this, uh, unfortunately. So you don't see this necessarily as a rejection of your agenda? Well, it's a, it's a rejection of, you know, the work that I'm doing. It's a rejection of my being elected. You know, it's the same people, by and large, that, that you know, that supported the campaign against me during the election cycle. They immediately pivoted. Uh, and because California has very permissive recall rules, you know, you don't have to commit a crime. You just simply, I don't like the way that you uh, look or the way that you talk. I can go out and, you know, and I can hire professional signature gatherers, as they did in this case, to spend nearly $10 million in, in, you know, pay obscene amount of dollars for signatures and lie to the people. You know, I actually had uh, an individual at a, at a Costco approached me and said, would I like to get rid of rapists in my neighborhood? And I kind of knew where it was going because I had heard this from others. But I said, sure, who, who wants to have a rapist in his neighborhood or her neighborhood? And then he passed me and said, well, you just got a sign here. Uh, never bothered to ask where I was a registered voter. Never bothered to ask if I even live in the county. Uh, and then I looked at it. I said, well, this is about a recall of the DA. And I said, uh, and he said, yeah. I said, well, do you know the DA? And he said, no, I don't. I mean, but, you know, we're trying to keep rapists out of your neighborhood. And he went back to the same thing. So I finally asked him, well, where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Florida. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, I do this. I'm very good at it. I get paid. He says, I make over $100,000 a year. And, you know, they pay for my expenses to come over. Uh, so that is really what's going on. So it's not necessarily a, a, a wholesale rejection by the community and certainly by the people that voted for me. This is, you know, people that, that lost an election and, and they're lying. And I'm not going to tell you that there are not some people that voted for me that now all of a sudden uh, are being misled, you know, with the onslaught of, you know, uh, lies and, and misinformation that is being put out, especially in some of the uh, more right wing media and social media that is obviously impacting people. And, you know, we are at a difficult moment, right? Crime has gone up nationwide, certainly has gone up in our community in some parts, even though now we're seeing, you know, LAPD reporting a reduction in homicides now from last year. But, you know, we, we've been through two years of COVID. Uh, people are angry, they're wary, they're running scared, and, you know, and, and, and then they're being lied to. So from your perspective, what does the public need to understand about the nexus between incarceration and public safety? Well, I mean, look, there, there, there are multiple things. Number one, the insecurity that we have today is the direct outcome of decades of mass incarceration, right? We put people in prison. 95% of the people that we put in prison come out. When they come out, they're in worse shape than they were when they went in. And I'm not saying that some people should not be incarcerated for a period of time. The question is for how long and for what. Uh, then we're releasing people onto the streets that are often very dangerous. And, and they're primarily often dangerous because the prison conditions are so horrendous that you know people become extremely violent in the prison setting. Uh, they often have untreated mental health problems. Their drug addiction is, is rampant in our prisons. And then they get released without a reentry uh, program. 
and they're put back out on the street, generally they become homeless immediately. If they're not homeless right off the day that they get released, they're unemployable. They cannot get, uh, you know, they, they can't get housing. In fact, you know, the LA Times had a very good article uh, just today about women that have been in prison for felony drug possession. You know, this was uh, years ago. Uh, she was released and she still have problems getting housing and she's going to school, getting working on her PhD. And she still has problems finding housing because, you know, she gets asked all the time by landlords uh, on the application, uh, have you been convicted of a felony? And, and she says, if I say yes, I'm not going to get it. If I say no, then I'm lying. So it's kind of a cash 22. So we have a system that actually through incarceration, we have created more insecurity. Uh, and I know that that sometimes is, is uh, counterintuitive because you say, well, we're locking people up. Yeah, you're locking them up, but they're going to come back out again. And they're coming out in a worse, uh, generally in a worse place than what they were. Um, but, you know, this is, it requires an explanation. It's so much easier the elevator pitch that the right says, you know, we just need to lock more people up and, you know, you're unsafe because they're allowing criminals to be out on the street. Well, criminals or people that have committed offenses are on the street every day, right? They get released because, again, 95% of the people that go to prison are coming back out. Yeah, and I think this is this is the key point. Um, you know, I, I've noted uh, before, and you just mentioned it, 95% of the people that are... Uh, that are incarcerated are going to be released. And then the other critical number is, you know, depending on the area and how it's measured, you know, 60% to 70% of those are going to commit another crime at some point. So the idea that we can incarcerate ourselves into public safety seems to be a fool's errand. You're absolutely right, David. And, and again, you know, I always underline some people are going to have to be incarcerated for a period of time because they're dangerous. So the question becomes, OK, if you're going to incarcerate some people, number one, what is the exit strategy? It's not just simply putting them in prison and forget until the day they're going to release. You need to have an exit strategy from day one, which is what we see. And quite frankly, the more enlightening, uh, you know, criminal legal systems around the world where recidivism rates are extremely low as opposed to ours. And part of our problem is because we generally don't have a reentry strategy. You know, we throw them in jail or prison and then, you know, we wait until they, they complete their, their sentencing and then they get released um, with no support at all and, and generally in worse shape. Uh, you know, the mental illness and, and drug addiction in our prisons is, is rampant, you know, and the conditions are horrendous. And, you know, like people come back out and they don't have a place to live, they don't have employment, they have mental health issues and all that. And then, you know, they reoffend. And, and to your point, at a rate of 60 to 70%, which means that we continue to create more victims uh, by the way we do the work. And I think another piece of this is not only does what we're doing not work, we're actually actively making it harder. We make it harder for them to get housing because we exclude people with drug convictions and felony records from public housing. We make it harder for them to get jobs because they have background checks and they have to disclose their felony status. 
I mean, if we wanted to design a system that's going to have high recidivism, it seems like we couldn't do a better job than we have now. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The system is designed for people to recidivate. In fact, the people that don't, they're, they're often just miracles, right? They, they just happen to be uh, exceptional people or they happen to fall in the right scenario with the right level of support. But the people that do not reoffend, uh, especially when people are coming out of prison, are, are really uh, generally they're exceptional people, you know. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, they have actually been in and out of prison multiple times until they finally age out of crime or they or they figure it out. But but it's not because the system is doing much to to make that happen. It's almost accidental, as opposed to intentional, which is what it, it boggles the mind because we spend so much money. Uh, incarcerating people, so little money rehabilitating, and then we, we create this high levels of insecurity. You know, we're releasing people now from prison uh, that are extremely dangerous, right? And, and, and we don't provide any support. We don't provide any housing or employment capacity or preparation. And they're homeless and they, they're out there, they're hungry. And the only way that they can survive is by stealing, you know? So, it's just a system that that is, you know, intentionally or negligently is designed to do what it's doing, which is continue to harm our community. And we start really early on, by the way, we start criminalizing people really in very early stages with, you know, through often, you know, excessive punishment for very, very simple juvenile type offenses. And that, you know, that creates this journey that is so hard for people to get out of it because each cycle makes it more and more difficult for for people to be able to you know sort of get out of the cycle of criminality one of the things that i noticed up in san francisco and it seems like a similar dynamic is now playing out uh down in la is that the media has done a really poor job of separating the anecdotes from the data. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, look, I mean, yeah, I, I, I generally divide media into three buckets. You got the, the right-wing media, which uh, I believe is very intentionally uh, lying to people. And, you know, we have plenty of evidence of that. Uh, then you have traditional uh, mainstream media that is so focused on ratings and sensationalism that they'll generally overlook the you know the their obligation I think because it's really I, I kind of think it's an obligation to to be thorough and to provide a full story over the rewards of you know the short uh, sensational type headlines and, and you know sort of the, the that are they're a say say maybe you know yellow, yellow journalism, and then you have you know the the sometimes the the, the media on the left that you know uh, it tries to 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 provide a better explanation, but often is so complicated in the way that that, that the work is done that it, it confuses people and it, and it provides uh, and it only gets traction with you know sort of the choir if you will. And, and unfortunately, the, the, you know, the sort of the middle of the, our community is left 
and with a vacuum of, of, of uh, lack of good information or digestible information. And, and we have so much problems because of that. So one example is that the media does a really poor job of distinguishing between early release and basically being released after serving the statutory minimal amount of time, for instance, a half sentence or something like that. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'll give you a, a perfect example. We had a, a horrendous murder that occurred here in L.A. County last year where we had a uh, an individual. And in his case, he had he, he went in for armed robbery. So, you know, if you commit a violent crime uh, and you're doing your full sentence, you're doing 85 percent of your time. If you commit a nonviolent crime, you're doing 50 percent. So in his case. He did 85% of his sentence. Uh, by the way, it was the second time that my office under prior administration had sent him to prison for robbery. Uh, and each time he completed his sentence. So he completed the sentence uh, in this case. Uh, CDCR had evaluated him and he evaluated with high propensity for violence, severely mentally ill and, and drug addicted. Uh, he did his 85%, he got released. And within a few months, uh, of course, he immediately became homeless. Uh, he was able to get a gun a lot quicker than he was able to get housing. Well, he never got housing. And then he committed a robbery in Beverly Hills and, and he murdered uh, Jacqueline Avant. Uh, and that was a you know, perfect storm. People said, well, he got released on parole. He got released early. Well, no, he didn't. He completed his full time. You know, technically, when you get off, uh, you complete your 85 or your 50 percent, your quote unquote on unsupervised parole. It was not an early release. Um, but, you know, the fact that he was going to harm somebody was very predictable, uh, and it did. So to your point, well taken, you know, people complete their sentence and they get out on this unsupervised parole, which is meaningless. Uh, they're not being early out. They're completing the sentence according to the statute, uh, and they're being put out there on the street uh, with little opportunity for success. And this is something similar that happened uh, with the gentleman who who killed the two officers, right? Uh, well, I mean, that actually is, is really interesting, right? So this guy, um, he had a history of purely drug-related offenses in, in, in one burglary uh, over 10 years ago where he burglarized his grandparents' home. He took a... A, uh, a TV, I believe, or a screen, a computer screen, in order to buy drugs. Um, he was convicted of burglary. He did uh, his time, which was 50% of his time. I decided two or three years. But he had been out of prison for nearly a decade. Um, he has some minor contact with parole and probation and, and traffic violations, um, had not been rearrested, had not committed any new offenses other than traffic-related stuff. Then he gets stopped, uh, and he's in possession. Well, he's got a gun in his vehicle. Uh, he doesn't have it on him. It's in the vehicle that he's got control of, and he has some uh, a small quantity of drugs. He gets arrested for the gun possession and the drug possession, and then he gets released on bail. And he's out on bail for nearly a year. And, uh, 
and you know, and nobody thought that he was dangerous then. And clearly, there was no history of, of violence on his life. Uh, he then takes a plea for probation, um, and during that period of time, he's fine initially. His mother then starts to get worried because his mother actually becomes aware that he's carrying a gun and he's using drugs again. And his mother starts calling probation and telling, hey, you need to come and see my son. You know, he's carrying a gun. He's using drugs. He's acting, uh, you know, uh, in ways that worries me. And she's doing that three months before the murders occurred. Probation never gets to him. They were doing once a month. Uh, phone check-ins or, or Zoom check-ins. And then, unfortunately, um, you know, police calls to do a welfare check at a motel that he's staying with his wife because supposedly there are some issues going on there and he's armed and uh, under the influence of drugs. And then, you know, this horrible event happens and two responding officers are killed. But, you know, you're looking at a guy that had no history of violence, then mother starts to worry. Mother calls and says, hey, he's carrying a gun. And probation doesn't act upon it. And then this horrendous event occurred. Uh, and then people want to point, you know, point fingers towards my office when it, it makes no sense. If he was dangerous, uh, he should not have been released on bail, which I, you know, speaks to the whole problem of why cash bail is, is, is worthless. Um, and and he's out there, and, and clearly he was released, by the way, and I don't blame the judge. There was no history of violence. But he's out on, the, you know, he's out on bail for a long time before he takes a plea. So the whole concept that somehow he could have been in custody, but for the probation, it says, you know, he, could, he was out uh, shortly after he got arrested for nearly a year before he even took the plea. And then when he has problems, the mother is calling probation and saying, hey, and probation has jurisdiction because uh, he is on probation and saying he's got a gun and he's using drugs again. Nothing happens. And then we have this, this horrible act. So I think, you know, one of the big lessons here is that even, you know, in cases like this, you know, things can go wrong. You just can't necessarily predict it. A hundred percent. I think what makes this case a little more uh, difficult for me is that actually this is a case that there was no reason to predict violence until the mother starts calling, right? And when the mother calls and says, hey, he's got a gun, he's using drugs, and he's on probation, right? So it's an easy thing. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that actually he, he was on violation of probation. He could have been picked up and sent to prison immediately to complete to do his sentence, which is a three-year sentence, but the system fails there. So there was no history of violence and no predictability there, but all of a sudden there is a there is sort of a flag, a red flag, and the red flag unfortunately is not attended to. And and this is my point, right? Because this is an anecdotal case where something went wrong, but we have we have data and data should be driving policy, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And that, you know, that is the, the, you know, what I'm trying to do, right? Is, is actually use data, try to use research and science to do our work. Um, the pushback that we get is because the data and the research actually 
points in a completely different direction to what we as a, as a country have been doing for the last four decades, which is incarcerating people in ways that all the research says, you know, you're not getting any safety out of it. To the contrary, you're, you're getting more insecurity. So I, I want to kind of move on from here. And one of the really interesting things um, I've, I've been following your career, um, not necessarily intentionally for, you know, over a decade now. And you started out as a police officer and, and, and you had fairly, you know, I'll say traditional views back in your early part of your career. How do you get from being a police officer to being a DA who was elected uh, to really radically alter, reform, whatever word you want to use, the system? Yeah, and, and this is what, you know, and I'm so glad that you raised this issue, David, because this is really a, a very important distinguishing point on my personal personal journey that often uh, those that are opposed to me either intentionally don't talk about or, or they don't know. Um, as you well pointed out, I was a very traditional uh, police officer, and, and I believed in, in high levels of incarceration, and I was a strong supporter, not necessarily of, of you know, being happy about the death penalty, but I was a strong supporter that certain people committed crimes that were so unacceptable that they deserved to be executed by the state. My own journey is one where I spent over two decades, you know, in the system doing the work that way and seeing firsthand the failures and coming to the conclusion, you know, that what we were doing was more harmful than helping and, and then looking for ways to, to explore and to learn and to educate myself to look for different ways of achieving community safety. So, you know, unlike other people that may be involved in the reform movement that, you know, they, they sort of, um, you know, that was their starting point and, you know, and, and, and this is what they believed in always. I actually got here because my own personal experience and exploration led me to a place where I understood that the way that I was doing the work was not working, right? So it's not like I'm some, you know, some naive, idealistic uh, person that, you know, just has a theoretical understanding of the system because I learned it in school. Yes, I have, you know, I have clearly, I have a law degree and all that stuff and I've been in school and I have worked a lot in the academic world. But I also have decades of experience that started with working as a patrol officer in the LAPD. And, and was there like one moment or one incident that really made you go, wow, I should be doing something different now? You know, David, and I get that question all the time and, and it really wasn't just a single point of inflection. There were, it was a, it was a journey for me. You know, I, uh, I think that, you know, the, the, and I used to call them the, the Rodney King riots. And then I said the insurrection, I, I, you know, I sort of evolved even in my own language there. 
um, you know, that was one of those points of inflection. I, I remember Daryl Gates, um, you know, when the when the the LAPD officers were caught on video, you know, beating Brad King, and Daryl Gates going out publicly and saying this is an aberration. And you know, I was a I was a young street sergeant and and working in South LA, and we all looked at each other and said, "Well, that's not an aberration, right?" That happens, uh, you know, um, I'm not going to say it happens all the time, but it happens frequently. And, and, and how, how our own chief of police, you know, was describing what occurred and how disconnected he was with the reality of what was going on in the field and how the community that we worked on perceived that and how he would come across as not being credible and how that impacted the legitimacy of our work. That was one, but I can tell you others. I mean, our, the way that we enforce um, drug laws, right? You know, we used to have um, very young officers that would work undercover in, in, in high schools uh, in what we call the, the, the uh, you know, by teams in the schools. And they were always deployed in schools that were heavily populated by poor minority kids. And, and we were arresting young kids, you know, generally black and brown kids for drug offenses that exactly the same behavior by white kids in affluent schools were not, say, facing any consequences. And I saw the impact of that over the years where, you know, white kids would experiment with drugs as a lot of young people do. And then they go on to go to college and then they, they sort of, some of them continue to use recreation and others don't, but they sort of, they never get impacted by the criminal legal system. Black and brown kids immediately build up a, a criminal record. And then they, uh, they start getting cycled into the system of initially juvenile incarceration, then adult incarceration. Uh, they build up a, a criminal history where they cannot get employment and housing. And, and basically, we create that path for failure. And I saw that playing up in front of me. Now, I didn't see it initially. It took me a while to kind of say, well, wait a minute, you know. So to the question that you asked was really like the one aha moment. It was not one. It was just, you know, it was, a, it, it was several that, you know, where things have started to build up for me. And sort of got me to where I am today. One of the things that I noticed, and you know, we were covering the courts in San Francisco right up until you know the point where where you um, resigned uh, to move to LA. And you know, I have to tell you, you know, having watched those prosecutors, San Francisco looked a lot like most other places. Um, and it seems like even from the time you were DA in San Francisco to the time you were DA in LA, you changed. Well, I mean, absolutely. I keep evolving constantly, but, but you know, I think people often, um, you know, if you, if you peel the onion a little, you actually see there was a tremendous amount of reform work that was going on in, in San Francisco. Number one, when I became the DA in 2011, San Francisco County Jail was full to capacity. Within a year of my being in office, we consistently began to run about a 50% vacancy 
And we were the only county jail in the state that for the following eight years was consistently about 50%, between 40 and 50% empty. And that was intentional. Um, I also immediately, a year within being in office, I was one of the spokespersons for the Three Stripes Reform, Prop 36. In 2014, I was one of the two authors of Prop 47, which created the biggest decarceration process in the state, even more so than realignment. And, you know, that Public Policy Institute actually did the analysis of that. Um, you know, we never, we very seldom three strike people. We stopped prosecuting uh, young kids, well, nine or six adults, it, about three or four years when I was in office. So, you know, I, I think that there was a, a tremendous path of reform that started really early on and continued to build up. Uh, by my second term in office, we were not prosecuting any kids as adults. And in my first term, frankly, it was a handful. Uh, our juvenile hall was generally, uh, again, it was full when I came into office. It was generally uh, about 80% vacant every night. That was going on during my tenure. So uh, we created the first independent investigation bureau to look at police misconduct. And while we didn't charge policing any shooting, we charged during my period of time, uh, 23 or 24 cases involving police officers, some of them involving use of force. Uh, and there were some cases pending when I left. So, you know, and then of course, uh, you know, Shaysa came in. And so I say that to, to say that, you know, um, San Francisco have been involved in a path of reform very aggressively uh, starting in 2011. And frankly, in all fairness, when I took over from Kamala Harris, even though Kamala wasn't necessarily a progressive in today's terms, for her time in office, she had done a lot of good things already. So there was a, 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 a progression. And at the same time, we, uh, you know, we reduced homicides by 50% during the time that I was in office. Now, I don't take credit personally for the homicide reduction, but we were there when there was a huge reduction in violence. We also were the first office in the state and one of the few in the country to replace our victim services chief, moving away from having a lawyer and bringing a clinical psychologist with a huge background on trauma-informed care and intervention and we created a model for victim services units around. We created the first fully restorative justice model for under 18, which was monitored by researchers uh, and it proved to be wildly successful. So there was a ton of stuff that went on in San Francisco um, that a lot of people were not necessarily paying attention to it. Um, and then, you know, Chesa came in and he added to it unquestionably. But I, you know, it was actually kind of interesting and very affirmative when uh, the number two of the, of the public defender's office, Matt Gonzalez, you know, when I left somebody, so we'll finally have a progressive in the office. And he corrected people publicly and said, you've had up to this point, the most progressive district attorney in the country uh, running the office. Now, 
things don't stay still and they shouldn't, right? They continue to evolve. The other thing that often people don't realize that from 2011 to 2020, the legislature in California created many avenues for resentencing that were not available when I was first a district attorney. So a lot of the resentencing that is going on now um, in LA and then went on in San Francisco was not possible in 2014, 2015. You know, Prop 57 created another path and that did not pass until 2016. And then there were additional legislation in the last four years. So I think also, and again, look, the left and the right often operate and with partial information and, and that's the way that human beings operate. But the proof is on this, the, the stats. You just look at the, at the jail population. You look at we per capita in San Francisco, in my time as district attorney, we had the lowest per capita prison referral of any of the 58 counties in the state. Um, you know, so, so a ton of work that, that was done. But again, you know, it's like if somebody comes after me in LA and is a progressive, they will continue hopefully to do bigger and better things. Um, and, and it just seems that you're being criticized and, and being, uh, you know, there's a recall movement against you for doing what you actually said you were going to do when you ran for office and the voters supported you on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, 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 the you know, kind of the, the, the odd thing about this is that I run on a very clear, I mean, I actually specifically mentioned the things that I was going to do during my campaign. And they won. I started to do that. It was not like a big surprise. Now, the people that came out swinging against me immediately were the people that were against me during the election. You know, so it, really what happened in my case was there was a there was a, a victory on election day, but the cycle of the election never stopped because the people that were fighting me continue to fight and continue to try to have, uh, you know, basically a new election through the recall process. There was never any, there was never any, uh, any reprieve. There was, well, let's wait four years. Um, you know, I, I was at a, at a public event not long ago where somebody actually, you know, and I normally won't say this, but this person said, look, not only is he doing what he said he was going to do, which is refreshing, but more importantly, the recall process is calling election every four years. Um, but, you know, California has what it has and, and we deal with the, 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 uh, the, you know, the tools that are being given. Um, but having a recall for someone that hasn't committed criminal conduct or, you know, some kind of the relation of beauty is actually, um, is problematic for democracy. And what lessons do you take away from what happened to Chesa Bodine in San Francisco? I think that the biggest lesson, I think if you talk, well, in fact, I know that if you talk to Chesa, he would tell you that Chesa initially rely on data, he kept, you know, his crime numbers in San Francisco were substantially down. In fact, they were lower than when I left office in many areas. And he kept talking about when he was being accused of being soft on crime, he kept saying, you know, well, crime is down, violence is down. 
And I think that it took him a while to understand that unfortunately, uh, data and statistical information is not what drives human emotions, right? People react emotionally to perceptions and perceptions become reality. And he was being pounded on by social media and others by, you know, a, a sort of those, uh, you know, big uh, groups going into a convenience store and, and stealing a bunch of stuff. And the same videos were being played over and over and over again. And, and that became the reality. And, you know, you look at the tenderloin and people complain about the tenderloin. And while it is true that the tenderloin needs to have another uh, another approach. And for those that are not from San Francisco, the Tenderloin is kind of the place in LA would be, it used to be a skid road. Of course, now that has become larger, but it's a place where drug dealings and a lot of homelessness have been occurring in San Francisco for decades, right? Uh, the difference is now in the last 10 years is San Francisco become more and more affluent and there is very limited real estate. You see a lot of people are starting to buy properties in the Tenderloin and, and you see a lot of tech workers and the prices of, you know, single family uh, SROs become condominiums and, and all of a certain, you know, a new group of people is coming into the Tenderloin and they're shocked by the, the sense of lawlessness. Uh, but what they, you know, what people that have been in San Francisco for a long time forget is that the Tenderloin has been this way for generations. And we have tried to arrest our way out of there with, with complete failure. And, and I'll even tell you, when I was, you know, I went to San Francisco as a chief of police. You know, Gavin Newsom recruited me to be the chief of police. And the first thing that I did, even though I was already a very progressive chief, I, I started making a lot of arrests for drugs in the Tenderloin. And Kamala Harris was supporting me. And we were, we were cycling a lot of people. We fell out the jail. And we never lowered the consumption of drugs in the Tenderloin because we arrested one dealer and another guy came in. Years later, there was a guy under the Trump administration that came in and as a U.S. attorney in San Francisco in 2017, 2018. And he said, you know, we're going to clear up the Tenderloin. And they did a bunch of by-bust operations. And the Tenderloin continued to be there. And I see now the new DA saying, well, we're going to start arresting people there. And, and she will end up in the same place. And you know the reason why? Because until you attend to the social issues and the lack of housing and the lack of treatment, you can arrest people today and they'll be cycling in and out and you can arrest the drug dealers and there will be another group of young kids that will come in the next day to sell drugs because the demand is high and the, and, and the availability of drugs is very high. It's foolish to think that people can clear up the tenderloin through arresting the way out of there. And, and unfortunately, Chesa was blamed for those things that have been there for generations. And the new DA, now she's going to make a big splash. And I'll guarantee you go back to the tenderloin a year from now, if not sooner, and their tenderloin will look exactly the same unless, and I put this in capital letters, unless San Francisco gets serious, are providing housing and services for that population, you're never going to arrest yourself out of the problem. You'll get a temporary relief for a few hours, a few days, and then they come back again. But Chesa, unfortunately, uh, was the victim of that. And to a great extent, we see that playing out not only in LA, but in other parts of the country, 
where the right wants to come in and they want to kind of say, we can arrest our way out of this. I think what's really problematic around San Francisco, and you see that beginning to play out, is people talk about being progressive, but doing exactly the same things that we did before. Well, there's nothing progressive about trying to arrest yourself out of a drug problem in your community or homelessness. And finally, why does it seem that race underlies everything in the criminal legal system? Well, because look, I mean, the system is by design racist. And I think that, and this is something that makes people extremely uncomfortable. You know, we start really early on with housing, public health, public education discrimination. We segregate people based on race. We start taking opportunities generationally from one generation to the next. And then we over-police those communities where we're also taking all those other opportunities away. And we act like somehow there is something inherently criminal in poor people of color, you know, in their DNA, instead of looking at it and say, you could take people of any color, you put them in the conditions that most black, many brown people live in this country, and you throw one generation after the other, and I'd like to see where would you be after two or three generations if you're not gonna be exactly in the same place that you know, unfortunately many black people find themselves in, in this country. Um, and, you know, you can argue, um, you know, a hundred different ways, but I think that the reality is that our system by default and is generational, it's a very racist system. And the outcome of that is the hyper incarceration of black and poor brown people in this country. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens because the system is assigned that way. Now people get offended and you know, I had talk, I have a lot of a lot of you know middle class, upper class, white people, professionals that I know, and they get very uncomfortable when I speak this way and they say, well I'm not a racist. I say, look, I'm not necessarily saying that you or I or you know individuals uh, are necessarily intentionally racist, but the system as it is designed has an outcome that is very race driven. And the facts, the, the numbers, the data is there to, you know, is glaring at us, right? Uh, so we may not like to think of ourselves as a racist society. And I don't think, you know, I think the majority of us aren't necessarily racist, uh, but we support, and there is a system at, at play, whether it's in your education, public education, public health, housing, or the criminal legal system, where the outcomes are clearly racist. And then finally, what message, if you could get one message through to the people of LA, what message would you like them to hear? Look, the message that I, that I try to communicate, number one is I'm very committed to their safety. I, I have been involved in, 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 in trying to make communities safe for the last four decades. I have evolved in how I view how to get there. 
but none of this is done because I am someone that actually doesn't care for safety. To the contrary, I care deeply about the safety of our community. And the things that I'm doing are based on the best data and information that we have today um, and, and trying to get us into a place where, you know, hopefully generations to come will be in a much better situation than we are today. But none of this is driven by anything other than my commitment to the safety of our community. All right. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on and sharing your thoughts with us today. My pleasure, David. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You take care of yourself. That's George Cusco and the DA in Los Angeles County. We will find out shortly whether or not there will be a recall campaign this fall. If there's not, there may be another recall, um, depending on what happens. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.